Welcome to Diversity Conversations, where we engage in thought-provoking dialogue to identify leadership solutions to today's most challenging conflicts. Stream live each week, Saturday, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., hosted by diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and CEOs Eric Ellis and Tommy Lewis. Join us and add your voice to this engaging diversity conversation. Good morning, Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, the United States, and the world. My name is Eric Ellis, and uh, I'm excited to be with you today. I'm joined with two guests. As you can see, Tommy Lewis is not here. He's out on assignment. Uh, you know, coach's job is never done, and so he is busy coaching young people, but we've got two amazing guests today uh, that are going to be helping us have a wonderful conversation about fatherhood. And so if you are up this early, already tuned in, I want to encourage you to let your friends know, text somebody, tell them that they've got to tune in uh, to Diversity Conversations because we're going to have a powerful conversation today. I can tell you that both of these guests, they can go. They're brilliant scholars. They're people that have been working in the space for a, 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 a long time. And I want to introduce to you uh, Wendell Ellis and Calvin Williams. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning, Good morning, Eric. Uh, we always start off our uh, show by just sort of reflecting on the week and uh, anything that sort of went on in uh, the past week. Uh, Wendell, why don't we start with you and just maybe talk about how your week was? It was a good week. Uh, very productive on the creative side, Eric. And uh, okay. as you know, a person with ADHD, you got to make sure you just like tunnel down and really try to. I have a, a mantra now is get one major thing done a day. Okay. Uh, because I think sometimes you try to you create a Thanksgiving day life where on Thanksgiving, you know how it is. You pile your plate up. There's so much food, you wow. don't know where to start and you never yep. finish. And so life can be similar unless you're able to hone down on one thing. So really, it was about getting one thing done. Uh, and so it was a good week. Uh, also, personally, uh, you know, some tragedy with Shock G. Everybody knows I'm a dancer. I'm a hip-hop dancer. And so RIP to Shock G uh, from really Digital Underground, which I can say was the absolute, and I know this is crazy, I've been to hundreds of concerts, it was the livest concert I ever went to. And actually, I took Jason, your little brother, Eric, okay. from Big, Big Sisters. I took Jason right. to that concert years and years ago. But it was the livest concert to date I've ever been to was a digital underground concert. And so RIP to Shock G that passed away this week. I know you also had a chance to watch our, our sister receive an award from uh, the YWCA. You want to weigh in on that? Well, Eric, that was absolutely incredible. I absolutely. The celebration for the women uh, recognized for 2021 was absolutely incredible. And uh, uh, personally, as a family, we had nothing to, it was just a proud moment, Eric, uh, just seeing Stephanie's transparency, uh, particularly as it relates to the, the YWCA's efforts and work with women helping women. Uh, we look at just over the past COVID year, just the amounts and the numbers of, of, of domestic violence that have gone up and, and, and violence against children, violence against women. And so it's a tremendous program. A lot of people were able to donate. It's one of their largest, it's their largest fundraiser of the year uh, is surrounding that event. And so they were just really looking. And I sent uh, that video out to a lot of people uh, that I know personally because it was really powerful. And so, of course, uh, being the, the youngest of uh, the Ellis's, uh, that I just look up to my brother and my sister. And I'm thinking, in this diversity, equity, and inclusion space, it's it really is a proud moment to have both you, Eric, 
uh, and Stephanie Smith is her married last or previous married last name. It's Ellis. She's an Ellis still, uh, but we really, really was a proud moment there. Well, I'll say this one. I want to just uh, commend you on this uh, as we uh, are uh, sort of into this springtime and the springtime feels as though we are blooming afresh and uh, we are uh, blooming in a whole new way as we're coming out of COVID-19 pandemic. And so it feels like we are getting new life. And as I think about this being my birthday weekend, it's not till Tuesday, but I'm celebrating the whole weekend. Uh, I love that, uh, you know, that you continue to find ways to keep blooming. And I think that as we look at potential, that uh, you are not looking at your life and thinking that it's time to sort of be uh, digging the grave for my burial. Uh, You are still uh, achieving new life and new dreams and new excitement that's getting you up every day, man. And I see that as being almost like an atomic bomb. It's combustible when you have that kind of potential inside of yourself that you're still trying to tap into. Thank you for that, man. And you I can mean. thank Oprah for that, Eric. Oprah was, I think, probably 51 or 52. And it was really wow. profound for a woman as, as as accomplished as she was to say, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I always remember that, is that from the one of the most accomplished people uh, and, and African-Americans and given her history of abuse as, as, as a child, for her to say after you know her being Oprah, oh, right. to say that that in her life she's still saying I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, and so I'd say that I'm headed in the direction of being that which what I want to be when I grow up. Right, I love that. There's life. There's curiosity in that. Uh, there's an ability to tap into that. All the things that God has created inside of you, Calvin. Good morning, my friend. <laughs> good morning, Eric. Good morning, Wendell. Uh, man, we are so honored to have you here. Why don't you talk at first, and we're going to have you introduce yourself afterwards, but just talk a little bit about uh, your week, man. How, how was your week? Sure. My week was true to form. Uh, I, I'm about fathers and fatherhood, so my week was, was just beautiful in terms of uh, blessing, serving, and helping fathers. Uh, I'm able to connect, I was able to connect some fathers uh, to the prevention, retention, contingency funds out there the uh, uh, part of the COVID uh, American Care Act. Um, Too many fathers don't know that there are tens of millions of dollars available to them in the form of two funds, Prevention Retention Consistency and then CARES Act funds. The CARES Act funds can pay for 12 months back rent and three months forward rent, okay? The, The PRC funds can pay for first month uh, rent and deposit, computers, beds, car repairs, uh, baby items. So I'm connecting fathers to these funds. So I helped the father get $2,700 to get his car fixed. So that wow. was a highlight of my week. Um, <laughs> we had our fathers to fathers uh, virtual group meeting, which we do monthly. Again, I focused on these funds, man, because uh, the manager of the funds told me, hey, we got, we're sitting on mountains of money, okay? Right. But the other thing she said was, I don't have men or fathers applying. Wow. So that's been my crusade this week. Well, I want to talk to you. Uh, Wendell, this is amazing. It's a it's a it's an interview that's long overdue. Uh, Calvin, we have got to stay connected. You are like the heartbeat of fatherhood. And uh, we all have got to extend our tentacles 
into you and your resources, man, because you are the lifeline uh, to uh, uh, some people that have been affected by this pandemic. And I keep saying that nobody is really calculating. The history books will have to tell what we've gone on, uh, through in right. this COVID-19 pandemic. And then for us, the racial pandemic, uh, these things will be written about. It's like, it's like a war uh, that's uh, maybe greater than a war that we all have gone through fearful for our lives every single day. And it's having an impact on people, whether it be drug abuse or just all kinds of depression, all kinds of things that are, uh, that are piling on people that were already uh, behind in a race. And Listen, so what I can tell you is the Ohio Practitioners Network for Fathers and Families, an organization that I helped found 18 years ago, we put on a virtual fatherhood group meeting for all fathers in Ohio. About 38 fathers showed up for that. The first half hour was dedicated to their children. So we had the fathers had their children on camera with them. And we heard how children were affected by the pandemic. We asked children, how were you affected emotionally, socially, and academically? There were several moments where your heart was lifted and several moments where you had to cry, listening to these young people. Then we had the fathers talk. We asked fathers when they registered to give us the topic or the, the thing they'd like to talk about most. You know what was near the top? Depression. Right. Fathers admitting depression. Mm. Fa one father just simply said loss of love. Mm. So right. that's what we're dealing with out here. Uh, you know, when you put a microscope on it, that's what we're dealing right. with out here. Right. Right. And in the meanwhile, we're uh, sort of, uh, you know, being televised is something that doesn't look anything like that. Uh, we, we are we are giving too much airtime to things that uh, that uh, have value, but they may be insignificant to the average daily existence of people. Right. Uh, so we're going to come back to that. Kathleen, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, uh, Calvin, we have a community that weighs in. So as we get deeper into the conversation, I know people are going to want your contact information. And so, uh, Wendell, if you all can sort of give that to us or, or somehow put that on uh, in our chat area, that would be helpful so that people can capture that. Uh, and my week was, again, another interesting week around diversity and inclusion. Had a chance this week to do some executive coaching with one of our clients. Uh, we did that in Japanese and English. Uh, the first session that I did uh, with them, uh, we're teaching them a lot of strategic things and some of that was going over their heads. So in the second uh, coaching session, I asked everybody to speak in their first language. And so I encouraged the Japanese executives to speak in Japanese. And I'll tell you, Calvin Wendell, the, uh, the, 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 the level of communication went through the roof. Mm -hmm. I had six slides that I wanted to go through. I got through one half of the first one because the conversation was so rich. I mean, because, and that just shows you that when you create an equitable way for people to, uh, to uh, become engaged, then there will be inclusion and you will find greater value than when you sometimes invite people to sort of uh, brainstorm or talk freely uh, in their second language about something that they're afraid of making mistakes. So that was a powerful experience. The other thing that I had a chance to do is I had a chance to visit. This was a surprising uh, uh, sort of event in the midst of my week. I had a, a sister, Rita Sturwood, 
uh, uh, that I knew years ago from Leadership Cincinnati. She just sort of reached out to me because of, you know, seeing us kind of on social media and said, Eric, I'd like to connect you to the president of the DePaul Crystal Ray High School. And so I said, okay, you know, and, uh, you know, although my schedule was swamped, I, I said, you know, yeah, I'll meet you there. And I had no idea why we had two hours on uh, the agenda. Uh, but I'll tell you, after I left there, man, I knew why. It, that was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced, man, what they've done in terms of build a high school, uh, uh, you know, basically for uh, urban uh, uh, young people, young people of color. But the high school doesn't look like a second class high school. Uh, it looks like somebody built it with love and uh, they were intentional. And you could just see the life and feel the life there and all the talented young people and the kinds of things that they're doing. That was a real inspiration, man. So I was I was grateful for that experience. Uh, why don't you first talk about uh, Calvin Window, how you all met each other, how long you've known each other? Wow. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> so Both of us um, about to get dated right now. Right. <laughs> so we're talking about the late 90s and. Uh, I was a uh, restaurant manager at rallies and okay. I was part of, I volunteered for, to, to be a part of a group of men in Winton Terrace that were meeting just to figure out how they can support each other and improving their lives. Right. Well, that little group turned into the Genesis men's program. We had support from John Gall, may he rest in peace and Edward Hubert, two local businessmen who were just supporting the group. They took it to a nonprofit community-based organization level while I was a volunteer. Right. Uh, so they needed an executive director. Uh, at that time, I had a little resume that had like just three or four little lines on it. Uh, had no reason for applying for that job. They did a national search. Right. And they chose me as executive director. Wow. And so that launched my career serving men and fathers. A few years into that, I had a concept. OK, we need more. We need uh, more instruction, more of a a pedagogical approach to how we uh, help these fathers advance. And so Brett Isaac, obviously, Winton Terrace was a part of his beat. And right. so I mentioned that to Brett. Hey, I'm looking for somebody, man, to run this Genesis Academy of Self-Improvement. And Brett said, I know a guy. And it was Wendell. And here we go. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Wendell, what's your uh, perspective on uh, not only how you met, but how you've been able to maintain such a close relationship over over all these years? Uh, for me, I'd like to say that you know this is an honor to be with two of my mentors uh, on uh, the show. So uh, Eric certainly uh, has been a mentor my entire life. Um, that big brother I looked up to, uh, and then Calvin. I met Calvin uh, December '95, and from December '95 to now, I mean, it's been a really a pleasure, Eric. Uh, first, personally, I talk about the Genesis men's program in my book. And I talk about how that connection and when Calvin sat down and said, we need a curriculum. I said, okay, uh, where do we start? Well, that's what I hired you for. Come up with a curriculum. And so we had an outline of curriculum and then we just started plugging in pieces, Eric, in terms, I started thinking about my life. And so I started thinking about manhood and what's the values and, and, and around manhood. And so we created this academy around three books. Uh, at first it was visions for Black Men by Naim Akbar, Live Your Dreams uh, by Les Brown, and then Letting Go of Anger. And then we started looking at the curriculum and then we modified it a little and added a book, Being a Man. And so we started looking at it, but it was still centered around the fellowship. 
and the connection that the men had in coming together in a fellowship chapter in their area, once a week spending several hours really connecting to each other. And so then we started taking pieces of the academy for the men that were working and we're in the fellowship. They're hearing about this academy and they're like, man, this is crazy. What are y'all getting all the good stuff in the academy and I got to go to work. So then we started putting that information in the academy. But, but as much as anything, Eric, I tell people, I said, in your life, and one thing that men struggle with is having a connection with another person, much less a man, that you can be completely transparent about. Right. Is that we talk about emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-control, social awareness, social influence, and empathy, those being the five components. But when you think about what we don't have, is often what we don't have is we don't have a person that we can be completely transparent and naked in our emotions and our feelings. Mm. So if I'm going through a downward spiral, then I have a person to reach out to. So I look at all the men in Genesis and they're still out there. And a lot of them live in the neighborhood and in our community. And it always reminds me of where it started was with Calvin. Uh, but when I have a time in my life, when Calvin calls me and says, how you doing? I'm like, I want to give the standard response. I'm good. It's all good. Right. But then you quickly realize that that's not this conversation. Yeah. That in this conversation, I can have 100% transparency as to how I'm really feeling because now I have a sounding board and I have an emotional support and a person with a skill set that's incredible around helping facilitate and being aware that also knows you, that's known you for nearly 30 years now. Uh, so it's continued to grow. And uh, I'm just excited as an opportunity to really engage in two people that I have a tremendous amount of respect, adoration for. And so that's uh, that's really a blessing for me this Saturday morning. Right. Well, let me, let me, yeah, let me weigh in on that just a little bit. And then Calvin, I'm going to ask you to talk about it from your perspective. So, uh, you know, I uh, sort of worked with Senator Bowen to start the Black Male Coalition, which went, you know, sort of thousands of black men, any sort of black professional that came into Cincinnati was joining that group. And that group had some real sort of social, emotional value to it. It felt like we were doing something that hadn't been done before. And it felt like we were taking back our power and we were feeling the collective power of seeing that you are not just the images that are shown on the six o'clock and 11 o'clock news uh, that you actually some of us are, are, are doing things. And then I went on from there to uh, start a, a group, the community of friends window, which you were part of. And and oh. what we saw there was that that men for many of them for the first time were able to take off the mask mm -hmm. and be able to sort of answer almost the same three questions every month and there would be tears on a regular basis i even brought it was all black men i brought a white male executive there and he was crying as well and so we find that people are lonely that they're isolated that for all that we say about the importance of the church. I don't think, Wendell, that the church does a great job of creating the kind of transparency that you're talking about. People are still putting on their Sunday mask to then go to church. And Sunday mask. So, yeah, yeah. And so I think that we find ourselves, you know, sort of isolated. Uh, Calvin, weigh in on uh, your perspective around that. And I'm gonna ask you even a couple questions about fatherhood the history and its importance, and then we sure. can talk about some of the programmatic things you do. Sure. So coming right off of what Wendell said, I mean, it's about trust, transparency, vulnerability. And here's something that gets lost in the sauce for too many men, playfulness. Yeah. Okay. You understand that? Right. You know, I'm, right. I'm studying now 
the the value of playfulness with children and what research is saying about how that impacts them later in life. Wow. Okay. So it's it's critical that we let loose with the vulnerability, the tough stuff, the hard stuff. Right. But we have a heart to play, a heart for joy, joy in all things. And these are the things that you cannot get off with just any guy, right? So Wendell is that avenue for all of those things for me. And so we feed each other, we strengthen each other, we tighten each other up, right. um, and we just enjoy each other. And it's, it's been a major blessing to be able to call on this guy for all these 30 years. And, and it, it can be simply as how you doing or, hey, man, here's what I'm dealing with. Right. Um, it, it, and we, Wendell and I know that too few men have relationships like this. We've both been working with men for a long time. So we can say that with, with some heft, right? Too right. few right. men have somebody in their lives, another man, that they can go to and engage the way Wendell and I do. Right, right, right. Powerful, powerful, powerful. So let me start just with some history, uh, uh, some questions around fatherhood. Uh, how did you come to develop an interest in the area? So it was. It started with the Genesis Men's Program, but at that time, I didn't know that this was going to be a life path. So it, serendipity was the order of the day. Um, so I, I did the Genesis Men's Program. Then I found my way at the United Way of Greater Cincinnati. Um, while I was at the United Way of Greater Cincinnati, I came across an article in the Cincinnati Herald that said the Services United for Mothers and Adolescents Program received a $2.3 million grant for fatherhood. Now, at that time, fatherhood was not in vogue. And what was really critical, this grant was from a small private foundation out of Cleveland. Right. Okay. Right. So it was just relationships between uh, the, the director of the program and this foundation. So I applied for the job and, and I got the job and the rest is history. I mean, I went into something that didn't exist and built a fatherhood program out of my experience with Genesis, my experience as a son, uh, and my experience as a man. And what I found out was I had a heart. It, it, to this day, it's, it beats strong for men and fathers and fatherhood. Mm. So that was the beginning. Uh, Service United for Mothers and Adolescents, or SUMA, Fatherhood Project, uh, which took me to Lighthouse. They received a uh, $2.5 million grant. Okay. Uh, to start a fatherhood program. And obviously the success we were having at SUMA was well known. So they brought me over to talk to me and I made the switch to Lighthouse to again, develop something that didn't exist. And that became the theme for the rest of my career, right? Around okay. fatherhood, because nobody was doing it. Right. All right? So, so I went to Lighthouse Youth Services, developed the Lighthouse Real Dads concept under the federal grant. And we became one of the premier programs in the federal grantee world around fatherhood. They would ask us to come to conferences, present, do workshops, tell us how you're doing this in Cincinnati, Ohio. From there, I was recruited to Oklahoma City, Public Strategies Incorporated asked me to come out and guess what? Create something that didn't exist. They didn't have a job description. They didn't have a title. They said, come on out. And I, I uh, was the director of fatherhood for Public Strategies and launched the True Dads Oklahoma program, which to this day is a powerful program that serves fathers in Oklahoma. So that's a that's a, a nutshell uh, description of how I got into this work. Uh, but I can tell you this, I used to say at SUMA, my heart gets broken every day, right? When I hear the stories of fathers, stories that the community doesn't hear, 
Right. Because community right. has a certain lens about fathers and particularly right. black fathers and particularly low income fathers. But right. Wendell and I from Genesis and myself through Suma and Lighthouse, we got to hear the hearts of black low income fathers. Now, you remember in the past, it was all about child support. Right. Got to get these guys right. to pay child support. Right. Matter right. of fact, most of the early demonstration projects that the federal government uh, had the 10 million, $20 million projects around the country to demonstrate effectiveness of engaging fathers, their primary goal was to get them to pay child support. Right, right. But they found out, and this is weird to say at this time, it says it in the literature, they found out that these men really cared about their children. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy, right, right. Yeah, because they were the view just deadbeat dads. Right, just yes. deadbeat dads. So, so let me go here and then I want to come back and I want to get even more granular into what are the kinds of things, what are the needs that exist and then what do you see and what are you doing? But let's go back and there's been a lot of sort of fact and myth around what are some of the things that have impacted uh, fathers, uh, especially black fathers, inability to be there. Uh, some talk about slavery when families were broken up during slavery and sent off to different places. Uh, some talk about, uh, you know, uh, in the 60s and 70s that the government sort of had a prerequisite that that women couldn't get federal assistance if they had a man in the home. How much of that uh, is uh, sort of fact and myth around, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that impact the fathers uh, sometimes in a, uh, absence from the home? And then what kind of percentages are we seeing in terms of fathers that are actively involved with their uh, uh, children and, and those that uh, may struggle? Yeah, so absolutely. The, the history of slavery, uh, Jim Crow, uh, has, has an effect on black families to this day. Uh, I'd say particularly in the area of how we relate to each other, men and women, how they relate to each other, how they see each other. So there's myths inside the myth, if you will, Right. where black men and women see each other in ways that aren't really 100% real and their expectations get out of whack because of those forces on our lives. But I would zero in on systemic racism, right? You could say that the social service infrastructure exists to mitigate the impact of white supremacy. One could make a case for that, right? Mm. The way it plays out in father's lives is you talk about the in the 1960s, Okay, if you have a man in the home, you can't get welfare. That's well documented and well known. And the impact is not to be trifled with. That that was very impactful. But what we see now are a combination of children's services, child support, law enforcement, uh, acting as agents to keep fathers away from their children. Although unwittingly, right? I'm not saying right. anybody's sinister, but I, I, I don't I could tell you thousands of stories of men being disconnected from their children with some impact uh, from those three areas that are that are really practicing systemic racism. That's the biggest issue with fathers right now, particularly low income fathers. Slow down and give us some examples, uh, sure. Alvin, because I think that it's important for us to dimensionalize this so that people can hear not just the top line but what are examples so that they can relate more deeply with what's sure. happening to people. So I can tell you over the 20 years of fatherhood work, I've heard this story enough. Um, mom said, if you give me $2,000, you can see your kids. Okay. 
So mom no. said, you give me your tax return and I'll let you see the kid. Okay. Why can why does mom have that power? A couple reasons. One, in Ohio, if you're not married and you have a child together, the full legal and physical custody of that child belongs to mom at birth. That's not the same in, in states around the country. There's wow. joint custody at birth for not married parents. So the father starts out behind, mm. right? To get his paternal rights, that not married, non-custodial father has to take the steps of going to juvenile court to uh, be uh, deemed the biological father of the child, uh, initiate or be a part of the child support establishment process where they do DNA tests routine as a routine. Then he's deemed the biological father of the child. Or they can do what I did because my son, who's now 27, we raised was raised in a co-parenting relationship. We had him out of wedlock. I filled out the voluntary acknowledgement form that's available at hospitals where you can sign the form. Mom signs the form. You get it notarized. You turn it in. And now I'm the legal biological father of my son. The challenge systemically is hospitals have the forms, but they don't really push it. They're not educating their staff about it. Fathers say, I never heard of that. I never saw it. So then you look at child welfare. This is really, really rough, man. In the child mm -hmm. welfare world, African-Americans, 14% of the population, 25% of the population who have children removed from their homes, right? Most of these homes are where the biological father does not reside. Research is crystal clear. When the biological father is engaged in the life of a child, doesn't even have to live with the child. If he's engaged, then right. the child is very much likely to avoid a host of negative outcomes, including being swept up in the child welfare system. Um, you have juvenile court where fathers, again, systemically, fathers are just silenced in court. I had a father this very week call me in crisis because he went to court because during one of the pick off, pick up, drop off exchanges with the non-custodial mom, uh, she ran him over with her car. This was last June. She ran him over. And, you know, I had this is this is a, I've had several sessions with the father. So he showed me his arm. It's mangled. Right. So he went to court this week uh, on that case. Now, he, he didn't file the charges. The woman left the scene. So police, the county filed the charges. All right. They prosecuted the woman. He goes to court, been going to court from last June to now. Mom has shown up like twice in that whole time. Well, she showed up this week. And guess what? She was found innocent. The father called me in crisis. Right. This is a man who says, look, I did my last bit in prison in 2017. I've been good. I'm focused on my kids work and take care of my family. I've changed my life. He says to me in this moment, what am I supposed to do? Right. Not only does she keep my kid from me, but now she's found innocent of running me over with a car. So you have the examples are legion of what happens in juvenile court with men who are trying to get their rights protected to be with and see their children. As a matter of fact, I'm really, really happy that the Center for Clinical Translation Science and Training at University of Cincinnati has granted the Fatherhood Collaborative of Hamilton County uh, funds to do a study and I was able to design the study and the hypothetical question. And I designed the question this way. Does father's mental, is there a connection between father's mental health and their parenting time and access to their children? That's the research question that we were able to put together.
Wow. So it's the Paternal Access and Well-Being Study, or, or PAUSE, as I named it. I didn't know it was going to turn out PAUSE, but I just named it. Right. Uh, but um, we're now, uh, for the first time, in the fatherhood field. And I'm telling you this. I've been in this game for a while. So you may say, oh, this research exists. It does not. We are, for the first time, locally, going to look at the phenomena of fathers being disconnected from their children in all the ways that happens and what happens to their mental health and well-being. We are studying that. We started April 1st. Wow. Wow. Now let's just pause for a moment. That's why I did. <laughs> That's the pun intended on the pause. Yeah, yeah. Because so 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 here's what happens to me immediately. I insert Eric Ellis, father, into that scenario. And it doesn't take me five seconds to think about how that would impact me if I didn't have access to my children. I mean, that's what I live for, man. Yeah. You know, I wanted I wanted kids when I was a kid. And I've got four of them, and that uh they've not disappointed me. They've they've given me life. I uh, I don't care what they're doing in life. I do. But I hope you hear me. I don't. I, they're here. And all I have to do is be able to see them and to see that they're healthy and to be a you know resource to them. And that gives me life. And the thought of not being able to have access to my children. And what you're saying is that that's one of the untold stories. Correct. Correct. And what's interesting from my perspective is knowing both of you and having been there for 25 years of Aaron's life and completely for my nieces and nephews and being Uncle Bestie is that these are two men that absolutely love their children and fill their children. And so I've seen Calvin in the process and he has poured his knowledge of fatherhood into raising his son. And so I think that part of also I think that people have to realize is that you can raise your children and, and you don't have to be this perfect image of a father to be a great father. And so I think that sometimes we live in this world that we look at it's all or none. It's a zero sum game sometimes as it relates to who we are. And so what I've seen in Genesis is that you've seen men gone from one point to another point in terms of fatherhood. Uh, but with you two, I mean, what I've always looked at and admired about both of you is what you're pouring into your children. I mean, Eric pours into his children's dream. When you started Positive Message Music and you had a music studio, it's not only in response to a tragic death of a young woman in Westchester, but it's also about the fact that you were saying, I need to facilitate my children's dream. And we have a musical family. We have a Von Trapp family. And so you were pouring into it. I look at what Calvin and what he's poured into Aaron and watching Aaron grow into AYK and looking that, You've created processes and really engaged your children. And it's really been impressive as a person that's been able to observe and not having children myself. I'm thinking, you know, it would be a you've raised the ceiling. You've raised the bar on what I look at in terms of fatherhood, uh, particularly coming out of the house that we came out of. Let, hold on. Let me take issue of, for one of the things that Wendell just said. Uh, Calvin, I know you'll agree with this. How in the world? Can you say that you are not a father? <laughs> okay. Mm. 
Well, I've been a surrogate. I've been a surrogate. Don't start talking yet. I know you do. You are a father to so many children, including mine. You're not just Uncle Bestie. You are also a father figure for them. Uh, Anything, any child I've ever been involved with, you've become their father. You stay connected to them. And Calvin, I want you to weigh in to talk about the importance of those surrogate fathers Mm -hmm. uh, in our community and what role they have played. Because if anything, wherever it happened to me, uh, the saving grace in my mind would be that window exists. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I'm about to cry, but I won't. Um, Listen, when, when when I say father, when the fatherhood practitioner community uses the word father, we mean biological step adoptive, caring male adult. Mm. All of those come under the heading of father when we say father. So Wendell has absolutely fathered, right? There's no question. Um, There is research, Kyle Pruitt, one of the early fatherhood researchers, laid out that there are levels of engagement and all of them have merit. So Mm. we tend to think that if, if I'm not a biological father, if I don't live in the home, if I'm not this, I don't that. But Kyle Pruitt showed there are levels to fatherhood engagement that benefit the child from low engagement all the way up to high engagement. So Wendell has filled the void for a lot of parents. He's supported a lot of parents. Um, you know, you can't talk to Wendell without talking about some kid who's in Atlanta or overseas or doing this and doing that. He's at the house. He stayed with me. He this, that, and the other. You can't, I mean, that's the Wendell story. <laughs> right, right, right. So, right. Right, right. I mean, uh, my, my uh, older brother just died. Our older brother just died last uh, uh, June. And Wendell has swept in uh, in a way uh, with his sons. I mean, to just feel a, a void. And in some, uh, to some extent, to even be there in a way that Duke wasn't even able to be there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so powerful and so needed uh, around our community, around our, our country and the world. Uh, continue. I want to just, uh, there are a couple of comments here. I just want to make sure. We now, one thing, the one thing I did what, that I think we, you know, that Kevin mentioned earlier that I think that we didn't don't necessarily spend enough time with is I want to bring a point back to playfulness because what I think Eric is, and what I've noticed and observed is that when it comes to young people, and this is going to be from an African-American perspective, we know that there's a pipeline to prison, but I think that in our response to that, even sometimes as educators and administrators is what I've seen is that we forget that African-American males and females are still youth. So I think about going to high school football games and I won't mention any high schools, uh, but I, we had a relationship with Taft High School. And so we had an after school program. Uh, when I became executive director, uh, we connected through their basketball team, football team and other students. And so we had mentors, we had a a learning lab, a tutoring lab uh, before Cincinnati Bell and, and Jack Cassidy really enhanced that at the school. But what I notice, Eric, is that we're often as punitive as African-Americans because we think that our punitive interactions with young people is going to prevent, is preventative. Mm-hmm. So we think punitive to prevention. And we forget that there are still young people and are able to express their youth. I used to go to football games, my nephew's football games up at Lakota West. And all the student body, they're just running around playing and having a good time. You go to an 
inner city high school or you go to a predominantly African-American high school and it's sit down. It's don't run. Either you're in the stadium, out the stadium, but I don't want to see you playing. And I used to ask myself, like, this is amazing that we're can we are as punitive as often the system is in how we interact with our young people. I'm like, these are kids at a football game. They this this is a part of their soul. This is a social event for them. They're not necessarily here to watch the game. They're here to play with each other after hours. And I look at all these other schools in these affluent communities, middle class and upper middle class communities, predominantly white, and you see kids running around playing. Then at the black schools, they're sitting down. We're policing them at all times. And right. so I'd say that uh, one thing I really looked at is that that research you talk about playfulness, because I think that's a message that has to get out, Calvin, that we have to make sure that we're not just engaging these young people. And we yeah. just had Dennis Williams show up from the Genesis Minutes program. Uh, Dennis, always a pleasure to see you, man. You've been knowing you pretty much my whole life. Uh, and it was a pleasure to have uh, Dennis in the Genesis Men's Program as well. Uh, but I think that we have to make sure, Eric, that we take the sting out of it. Because, again, I remember that when I was at Genesis, and I'll never forget that a, a friend of ours, a nonprofit, she said, Wendell, you're a bleeding heart. And I remember looking at her and saying, if you're a bleeding heart and nonprofit in the work that we do, you'll bleed to death. I said, this industry and Calvin and being a leader in the fatherhood industry in the area is about progressive. It's about people that are provocative. It's about bright, intelligent people that are able to look at and identify an opportunity and then begin applying solutions to that opportunity. And so that's what I think that has been so impressive is it's not just looking. I mean, you'll hear Calvin and he he's learning. He understands. He's looking at all the research. He's looking at best practice models around the world because I think it was important because when I looked at Genesis, when we started the Prison Watch program, it was because it was before federal reentry. Before the money was out there, we were going into prisons. And I was like, hey, Simon Lee, Sheriff Lee. He was like, what you want, Wendell? I said, I want to go into jails, reach them before they come out so we can make a connection, a Genesis connection. He said, good, done. And then he started putting all of the money in the commissary and he got rid of, he had to sell underwear and socks. And he said, we're going to put that in our education program. And then they allowed us to come through their education program and start facilitating groups inside the jails before pre-release. And so I'd say that, you know, part of it is, is that I just don't want us to always be punitive, always be serious when it comes to these issues around African-Americans and young males and fatherhood, because I think sometimes we do lose the play for this. Right. Yeah. Can I jump in here, please? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at the Summa Fatherhood Project, way back when, when the Cincinnati uh, Post still existed. I picked up the post. They had a series of articles on brain development. Mm. I was done from that point, right? Right. I took the article, I typed it up in, you know, 14 point font, extra space between the paragraphs. We had a fatherhood group at the Fatherhood Center on East McMillan. And I passed that article out to the 25 men in that class. And, and I put two dictionaries in the middle of the floor. And I said, men, we are going to start understanding how our kids' brains develop. Mm. Eric, from that point on, I have always attached brain development to the fatherhood work. I'm working with a 15-year-old father right now. And of the materials I sent him was information on what happens. He has an infant baby, a few weeks old. I sent him information on what happens between zero and three in terms of brain growth. 
It's an explosive period of brain growth. Some research says 700,000. Some research says a million neural connections every second in that age range. So it is critical to what Wendell said about playing with your children. When you play with your child, when you goo goo and gaga, when you throw them up, whenever you're looking in their eyes, you are building their brain because the brains develop based on what's happening in the environment. The brain development in the womb is done. The rest of it is what happens in the environment, right? And the most famous study out of, uh, I think it was Hungary, the orphan study, where they looked at orphans who were simply fed and changed. And they looked at orphans who were loved and talked to and played with. The brain uh, scans were stark in their differences. So uh, brain development and playfulness go hand in hand. So let me ask you this, Calvin. So uh, I want you to help walk us through the difference between the young father that doesn't want to own the kid, doesn't want to take any responsibility for that kid, uh, mm -hmm. doesn't even want to acknowledge that the kid's theirs. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what's the distance between them breaking through and grasping that and sort of uh, embracing that? Sure. What do you think is the characteristics and the, the reasons why a father can be disconnected from this? And then what do you see happen when they make that connection? First and foremost, fragile families and child well-being study put that myth to rest. Fathers, they found that low-income black fathers, 80% of them went at the birth of the child, wanted to be with the mom and be a father in the child's life. That's Dr. Ron Mincy out of Columbia. Okay, so... Stop it. <laughs> right? So we don't need them to break through. We need to love and nurture them into the role mm -hmm. of fathers. The reasons fathers stay connected to their children, cognitive resources, financial resources, home. All right. They're not, not dealing with homelessness. They have employment, et cetera. The reasons fathers disconnect from children. The number one reason is the mother of the child. And if anybody wants to test me, test me. I got the research, right? It's the mother of the child is the number one factor in whether a father's going to stay connected to their child. Now, does that mean I'm denigrating moms? No. Back to what I said about the myth inside the myth, right? So moms think they have a, a, a view of how this father should be and perform and function right off the bat. Mm. And it doesn't line up with the developmental arc of a man into fatherhood. Mm. Uh, Eric, you know, you developed into fatherhood up to today. Right. So, but but women in our community, they don't understand that concept. They think you need to be this dad that I have in my mind, either from my dad or from my missing dad. You need to be that person right now and always, right? But research says no. Men have a, a decided developmental arc into becoming the fathers that they want to be and they need support. How do moms do this, right? Sadly, as I mentioned before, moms know, and this is, this is sad, they're not, they're not being sinister, right? They're living out trauma themselves, okay? Yeah, yeah. But moms yeah. know that I can call child welfare and say something. I can call the police and say something. I can call child support and say something. I can call your job and say something and mess you up. Mm. So therefore, you need to do what I'm telling you to do, and of course, men are not going for it, right? And so they're they're fighting back, right? 
They're following their own motions. They're, they're doing their own uh, tactical moves to, to try to stay connected to their child. So it starts with mom. Then it goes down into these systems that I talked about. Then it goes down into an area that we never talk about with fathers and fatherhood, and that's mental health. Right. Hence why I want to find out the connection of mental health and access and parenting time, because fathers can be the low income fathers. Come on now. They're traumatized already from their own childhood. Right. You talk about gray matter in the brain. You talk about worldview perception. You talk about cognitive ability or inability. All this goes into fatherhood, too. So we got to heal these men. We got to help and develop and love these men into the role that their hearts know they want to take. Every single moment in my fatherhood career, I say the same thing. A staff from way back at SUMA to people I work with now know every man wants to father well. Period. So when you talk about the difference and the distinction, there is none. Every man in his heart wants to be a really good father. Wow. So let me so, take you. Thank you for that. Uh, Mythbuster. Uh, I'm going to ask what you. They call me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to ask you another question. So this is another transitional question. Uh, and the transitional question is from racism and blaming the system to ownership and accountability. Mm -hmm. Where's the balancing line around that? And what makes that difficult? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with violence. And I'm gonna suggest to you that the big thing that's on TV right now is black people getting shot, killed by law enforcement. I did some research that found between 230 to 245 or 50 black people get killed a year mm -hmm. from law enforcement, but we kill 7,500 of mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that everybody, and so, so, so part of it is when, when whites say that, we get angry and call it racism. Uh, that's almost a clip of 29 to 30 times as many times we're killing each other, but everybody kills everybody. We know Latinx kills Latinx, whites kill whites. We do the same. But I'm saying that we have this huge energy to fight against the injustice of uh, law enforcement, mm -hmm. but we don't have as much passion to do the work around, uh, uh, around our own killing. Mm -hmm. And so I look at violence and then say, the violence that happens within our community, how much of that is a result of racism and response to that, and how much it is about uh, accountability and ownership. Sorry to drop all of that in your lap. There's no easy answer to it, but I know you can weigh in. Yeah. So when I think about the violence, I do think about, again, the impacts of systemic racism. When you say ownership and responsibility, when you, when you, um, when you take that down to a, a neurological level, right, you start to understand how poverty impacts the brain how maltreatment impacts the brain. And again, zero to three, zero to five, the brain doesn't stop growing until you're in your mid or late twenties. So what happens is people have poor emotional self-regulation or no emotional self-regulation. People have distorted ideas of their own value and the value of the people around them. And so you get into this really messy soup between uh, neurobiology, neurochemistry, environment, lifestyle, lessons, it, it becomes a soup. So it's not an easy thing to just tease out and say, 
this is why we this and this is why we don't, right? right. So, and the other thing is in, in black communities, the very impact of hyper-policing, the proliferation of cigarettes, alcohol and drugs, this is not all happenstance. This is all designed by corporations and the government to get, to make money, right? Racism is a profit industry, right? People profit from racism. So there are so many factors that go into what makes a person or a community violent that, that it can't be just teased out simply, right? No and doubt. One, one thing that I will say is that when men are allowed to give in support to and operate in that fatherhood role, they're way less likely to engage in those behaviors. Absolutely. So, so the so the reason why I'm asking that is because for me, we've got to have uh, more options than just sort of wait on the system to no longer be racist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That ain't realistic. Mm -hmm. Even though my whole job is fighting racism, systemic, all that kind of stuff. Uh, our whole job, we, we can't reduce the, our, our, our roles to either that or 100 uh, percent sort of take uh, ownership of this as though uh, racist uh, patterns have not had a uh, systemic and ongoing impact. So I'm looking for where do we find our energy to develop our solutions and develop those in conjunction with our allies? Yeah. So one of the reasons why it appears that way is because neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block, house by house, like people that. are working against violence against black people. Little nonprofits, Wendell, who, how many people you know, just regular folks, I'm starting a nonprofit because they care about this issue. Absolutely. So we're not going to see the anti-violence and the other loving, caring uh, uh, efforts that happen in neighborhoods. We're not going to see about them. But uh, when you do uh, asset map of neighborhoods, right. Right? right? when you asset map those neighborhoods, you're going to find a ton of activity working against those. So what I'm saying is, the, the systemic and structural racism has an outsized impact, right? And it does, and it, it can't keep up with the poorly funded or not funded efforts that men and women are taking in neighborhoods and communities thousands and thousands of times. Yeah, and I think Love that, it's, and this is a topic that Kevin and I have talked about a lot. Uh, so uh, we spend a lot of time in the space, Eric, and I think that you know the reality is is that, and Eric, similar to you is that some of my challenges are, is if, you know, what else can we do? Because I think that traditionally we saw this as the role of the church. And so then I think that we've seen that that role of the church has been minimized over the last 20 plus years. And so I'd say that then if you look at it and saying from a morality perspective, what impact did the minimizing role or the minimal role of the church have in our African-American communities. Because remember, during the civil rights movement, post-pre-integration, uh, uh, we were more locked into a community. And so whether it was the West End, Lincoln Heights as a middle-class community, Harlem as a middle-class planned neighborhood. We look at uh, uh, was Oakland as a middle-class neighborhood. And, and they go on and on and on and on. Uh, and so you look at it and saying, at one point before integration, that there was less of these issues when we were all of us were in the community. And so I'd say that if you didn't, and my childhood was based in, you know, Eric used to take me around from household to household to eat. 
So if we wanted a dinner, we go to Mrs. Gaunt's, Mrs. Price's house. I would go to Mrs. Cockburner's, Mrs. Gordon's. We would go all over to eat, Mrs. Rebels. And so we were always eating at each other's houses. So I'd say that there may have been because of the systemic racism and also because of some people would say integration is, is that we had less of the households that your doctor wasn't necessarily living in your neighborhood, the accountant, the lawyer. And so there was this transference of values and of intellect and of different conversations that was happening that post-integration, we've lost a lot of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I also believe that, Eric, that you can't necessarily say, okay, well, at the end of the day, all that sounds great. It's an infinite number of resources that we put into nonprofits. And I'd say that we spend billions and billions of dollars every year, but yet we haven't seen a tremendous exodus of individuals from the system. And I'd say from being and seeing the evolution of even our local nonprofits, looking at funding, look at the boards of organizations, Eric, I'd say that I look at a lot of it and saying that we're looking at, I'd say that at a granular level, even organizationally, from when I moved, got in the nonprofit in 95, when I'm leaving in 2009, 2010, that I saw a huge difference in terms of the business model of nonprofit. I saw organizations going from, and again, and imagine these are well-funded organizations that were then being forced into a business model saying, we need more outcomes. We need you to do it faster. We need you to do it quicker. Quicker. It has to be leaner. So we went into a, a lean organization with higher outcomes, which means that they weren't intense. I remember when programs started, they had a 10-week program of people looking at their lives. Now that program went to one week. They had a four-week process. It went to one week. So what we looked at, Eric, is that the business model changed the entire paradigm of nonprofit. And so I'd right. say now those people that are out there and they're the ones that are supposed to be really providing the services and the healing and the programs, they've been strapped by a business paradigm which says we need it faster, we need it quicker, and we know what that typically gets is right. less of an outcome. Right. Let me uh, throw this in because I think you're right, Wendell. I think that we're trying to put these uh, tests, these business model tests on the kind of change that takes time and commitment. Change yeah. does not happen anywhere overnight. I think that the biggest impact on much of this, Calvin, I'd love your perspective and Wendell, yours, is I was looking at some research that said that for people of color, 90% of our poor live in a ghetto. But for whites, only 10% of their poor live in a ghetto and 90% live in mixed income neighbors. I think so much of this is about the environment that you're in and what do you get to see because of redlining and everything else that has pushed poor people into a, a section uh, so that we could sort of manage them out of the way and then run highways through the neighborhood. Uh, I think that that's, a that's as big an impact on us as anything is what are the role models? What do I get to see? And so maybe we, in fact, need sort of physical uh, uh, change in terms of mixed neighborhoods so that people have an opportunity to observe because that's the stuff that's influencing me on a regular basis. I'll never forget, I was preparing to talk to a group here recently, a think tank in Springfield, Ohio, and I looked at a study that talked about the achievement gap between brown and black children and whites. And they, they went away from the old parent, uh, parenting thing, the, the, the inability of parents to do their job with black and brown children. And they said that a lot of the gap they found is a result of having to deal with stress and trauma. Mm -hmm. 
Right. In other words, the discretionary effort that a kid could put into doing better in school was spent trying to survive the stress and trauma that they're dealing with on a regular basis. So I think if we were looking for one major change that may give us an opportunity to get some breath, is it may be sort of how do we redesign community neighborhoods? Yeah, Eric, you are so on point. It's not even funny. When you start talking about family strengthening work, it goes hand in hand with economic development, right? And you're right, Eric. I know the research you're talking about. There's a difference between concentrated poverty and outcomes right. there and poverty that's more spread out. Right. There's also a difference between relative poverty and abject poverty. Woo. And though, again, and these things have an impact on the brain. People think this is just a side conversation about the brain. You better cut it out. These <laughs> things impact brain growth and development. All right. And, and to your point, you said it beautifully. And behavioral economics, this is kind of new field that's out there, makes your point. People do not have the same cognitive resources when they are living in poverty and lack as people who have resources. It's just that, and the last thing I want to say, going back to something that Wendell said, is that I, I heard this, I read this in, I think it was the, the what is it, Philanthropic Times or whatever the, the newspaper is. There is never going to be enough philanthropy to solve these problems. Do you know where the challenge is? There's racism in the tax code, sir. Yeah, yeah. And we yeah. have, there, there are estimates that if we, if, if there was a third party verification system for businesses like there is for regular folks, right, right. our third party verification is called the W-2. Right. Okay? That was an innovation that came out of World War II under the guise of everybody do their part. Businesses don't have the third party verification. Businesses put down what they put down. Right. So there's a, a, a New York Times article I read that said if there was a third party verification for businesses, over the next 10 years, we could collect 1.4 trillion in taxes, right? Since those taxes aren't being collected, whose taxes are mainly responsible for upkeep of the infrastructure? Middle income and poor people. Right, right. right? So right. Th it is structural. It is structural. Right. And the tax code does not get the attention it does. And it's a black woman who is the leading expert on racism in the tax code in this country. Uh, George H.W. Bush administration used her. Now nobody wants to bother with her because she's talking about how to eliminate racism in the tax code. Right. So, right. again, concentrated versus spread out, abject versus relative right. uh, resources and economics in a book by Michael Lamb and his wife on uh, fatherhood interna internationally. They stated there is nowhere on this earth where there's a community where there's a lack of resources where there's there's degradation and, and, and just just lack, total lack and great fatherhood going on. Right. OK. Right. The environment, the economy, the, the neurobiological, neurochemical. These are the directions we need to go in if we want to so-called uh, handle this problem. And philanthropy is not going to do it. Stop it, y'all. Right. OK. The so numbers sound amazing. Oh, so and so right. gave five hundred right. million dollars. They sound amazing. Not right. But the right. problem is trillions of dollars old. Right. So let me throw something else. You, you're, you're, you're waxing so eloquent with your brilliance this morning. Wendell said you would, uh, that it, it causes me to pose some other uh, sort of themes, uh, work that I've been sort of trying to work at unsuccessfully. 
but so let me try these things on you, Calvin, get your reaction. So I believe, number one, I don't believe that most people are interested in inclusion of any race. I don't think anybody is naturally interested in inclusion. Everybody's interested in being included, but nobody's really interested in inclusion. And so I say that, and then black folks say, no, no, we are, it's the white man. I say, oh, no, no, no. Look at where we have positions of power and then see what we do. If you look at the black churches run by black men and then ask yourself how much energy and effort are they putting into getting black women into leadership? If you look at the black elite and wealthy and say how much time and energy are they putting into really relating to the poor and do they want poor children marrying their kid? I think all of us struggle with it. Uh, but here's what I think, if people really understand inclusion it is in our self-interest. In other words, as we really bring together multiple uh, differences and create the synergy that can happen as a result that we actually build a bigger pie and it allows all of us to thrive and succeed more. Now, let me take you to the model. I don't believe that volunteerism is sustainable either. So I think every time we talk about a solution and then we want to say, let's get some volunteers, I don't think that's uh, sustainable because of the, the lack of discretionary time that people who are struggling to survive, they don't have the discretionary time to put into all of this other save the world when you're trying to eat and get something on your table yourself. So one of the things that I've tried to do then over the last four years unsuccessfully is establish this initiative called the Business of Urban Transformation where I seek to recruit drug dealers, gang leaders, killers, to partner with me uh, to uh, bring down violence in exchange for partnering them with traditional business owners in easy to enter businesses. In other words, let's look at a business model that is a strategic alliance. It's not a handout. It's not us trying to save them. I think we need some knowledge and some courage that exists on the streets we have to stop looking at uh, dope boys and gang members as not our kids. We want to run them out of the neighborhood. Those are our kids. How do we tap that resource in a business way? And so I'm saying that the business model is if they're partnering with me and we're going after business with Messer Construction to rehab houses, now you've got a model that can work. And then sort of the infrastructure is all these other support systems. Uh, do you think there's any merit to us thinking about solutions in a business way instead of waiting for uh, grants and programs that may not be able to deliver sustainable dollars? Because I think that if we really if we looked at our neighborhoods and we saw the untapped uh, you know power and 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 and, and gold and in assets. yeah assets that exist there. I think that we've got to take our intelligentsia, if you will, collectively from the streets to, to the universities yeah. and put that together to make something that allows us to build more and benefit economically from it. And I think, last word, people will find that the economic carrot in this is not its ultimate power. It's actually the relationship in it. In other words, us getting to know one another. So the, right. the, the, the business model is the carrot but the true value is the relationship. Your Eric, thought. What I would tell you is keep doing what you're doing because my design thinking brain says you need to keep on failing, okay. right? So you All can right. ultimately succeed. But there's a but we need to think about a certain way to fail. Let's fail out loud. Yeah, <laughs> okay, absolutely, right? man. So we right. can have a chance to, to, to succeed. The other right. thing I think about 
is, um, and you, you said this as much, right? The economic capital is one thing to build, but you got to build some social and relational capital as well. Um, universal basic, basic income. I am a huge fan of that. I've been watching that, these studies overseas. I've been watching it in Stockton, California, um, different uh, demonstration projects around universal basic income. It, it, the results are blowing people out of the water, right? A, a uh, fishing, or excuse me, not fishing, but a, a uh, indigenous community in Alaska decided about eight years ago to take their oil profits that were that were due to the tribe and deliver $400 a month cash, no strings attached, no forms, no uh, uh, job search uh, responsibility. Just here's $400 cash every month. What did, the, what did that research show? Parents parented better. Children were happier. People uh, started businesses. Uh, reason children's outcomes improved because the parents had the time and what you mentioned earlier, the cognitive resources to put into their children. Last thing I'll say is I just started reading The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. It's making the argument for what you said, Eric, is that there, and Wendell said this earlier, we are so used to being told and, and, and sold this idea of a zero sum game right. that we have lost sight of the fact that if we do function together, I'm going to come back to your inclusion thing in a second. Okay. If we do function uh, together, we can have more. One of the opening uh, statements in that book is when she when she asked the question, why can't we have nice things <laughs> in America? And and she's and I'm only a chapter two, but she's painting the picture for we can if we took the uh, resources, energy, time, money that we spend keeping people apart and put it and put it together. So to your inclusion thing, and I'm getting some of this from the some of us. Right. Um I agree with you. Why do I have to live amongst a whole bunch of people to be well? How come I can't be with my own? Right. In the early 1900s, we, people talk about Tulsa because it's the best example. But there were hundreds of black towns and municipalities. And why wouldn't they? Any normal person who's being persecuted in one region is going to go somewhere else. They're going to start businesses and homes and towns and all that. What happens is these things over in the early 1900s, 1919, Red Summer, things that were called race riots were attacks on black economic well-being, yeah. right? So, so yeah, I don't think people want to be included as well. I can tell you right now, I love black people. I have white people in my life. They cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Hey, right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right, right. And I so was now, on, now, one thing I do, I do want to jump back on because I mean, this is the thought that we have with the Genesis Academy of Self Improvement Company. Was Eric is that in looking at the transformations? I think that there is still. I mean, we talk about this being a medical model, and so Calvin, we've talked about this as a medical model of nonprofit, which is the time that it takes for us to really bring about an awareness. We talked about it, went back to childhood and talked about, as I talked about in my book, the trilogy of abuse. I mean, I faced sexual, physical, and emotional abuse as a child. And then I was dropped off the world at 13 years old when my father passed away and our mother had mental health issues. So we know that there's a strong medical model to this. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that, Eric, that part of the opportunity and urban transformations is to make sure that we are addressing the person, because you're talking about killers, Eric. So if you're talking about a person that just doesn't really have a challenge to take it to human life, and then also you're talking about putting this person in a business with a person that said, hey, we're going to bring you over to this construction company. They're going to mentor you. Yeah. And we talked about the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. 
There has to be something in between those two, Eric. It's not yeah. just about dropping no one. Doubt. No doubt. And, and so I, I see back to you know to Calvin talking about in this process we have to build in failure as an opportunity. But I'd say even before we get to the failure, it's about that design model and thinking. You know what are still the needs of individuals and in talking to people and getting to understand what has contributed to it. Because as you talked about earlier, my heart went out this week when a 16-year-old young woman in foster care was killed in Columbus, when a 13-year-old was tragically young lady lost her life in a knifing incident in Winton Hills community right here in Cincinnati at the hands of another 13-year-old. You look at over the past week, you've said several 13 and 14-year-old young males that are charged with murder in Cincinnati. And so we're going to continue to lose these beautiful lives, Eric, if there's not an intervention. And I think that some of it is around, as you talk about the neurological processes, as we talk about the brain's development, is that we have to start yesterday and making sure that we create the right processes and really for us to be able to engage in certainly the systemic and, uh, and racism that has permeated throughout every area is having an impact. So let me throw this in there, both of you. So how do we begin to string together those mom and pop efforts uh, into a quilt uh, of progress? Because my sense is that you're right when you said there are a lot of assets in communities, but they have collectively uh, sort of that little drop at a time doesn't have the ability to have the same impact as systemic racism over time it has. Uh, so if we know that intellectually, I would say to you that part of the challenge that I see is that people, even in helping areas, don't often trust or are willing to collaborate with one another. And sometimes, even if I look at my profession, uh, you know, people that are sort of inclusion, diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, consultant experts, they don't work well together. Uh, they don't look at opportunities. To, so how do we begin to change that, uh, Calvin Wendell, uh, to incentivize uh, people's uh, willingness to collaborate in sustainable ways? For me, first, take away the safety net, the whole concept of a safety net. Get it out of here. Build me a floor. Okay. Nets have holes. Okay. Mm. I want a floor so that people can have more uh, resources, more of themselves for crying out loud to bring to somebody else. Right. So that, that, that's where it starts for me. The second thing is hewing back to design thinking. The key principle in design thinking is to build empathy for the end user. So if we have an end that we see for somebody, have we built empathy? Do we have we really done the ethnographic interviews and research? Have we have we figured out what these people do, say, think, want, where their pain and gain is? I led a design thinking process inside Hamilton County Job and Family Services. So I got to know this this process very, very well. And without that empathy for who we're designing for, we're always going to miss the mark. Yeah. Right. So even the people that you're helping. Uh, Eric, the question is to take a step back and see, do I have all of the information I really need to design yeah. solutions for these people? No doubt. No, Eric, I don't, don't have. Let me, let me throw this in there before. So so in my model, there is a level one and level two. So level one is the recruitment. But level two is the infrastructure. And so for me, that infrastructure is a combination of best practice 
uh, sort of agencies and efforts around the community. In other words, you don't try to be everything. You actually do what I'm saying. You tap into those that are doing education best, drug recovery, you know, all of those things so that you have a support system that can then help all of us. And I would say when you ask the question, who is the end user? I think that having empathy, I think that in many ways, Calvin, we are all just a paycheck away from the bread line. So this notion that there is a clear demarcation between people that are sustaining themselves and people that aren't, I'm not sure if that line is that clear. And I think that as you go with us towards any level, you will find us struggling to stay on the plus side. And so if we don't recognize and develop models that say it's about how do all of us benefit from each other, and even if you don't have the same economic means that I have, you may have some values, some other values or intellectual ca capabilities that can be helpful to people at any level. Eric, Does okay. So let me jump in here because there's a lot. And I mean, with 14 minutes left in this, you, you ah. really, I mean, you've thrown out, a, I mean, you've thrown out a serious thing, but I'll, I'll say a couple of things real quickly is there's a couple of things, Eric, I think that when you talk about best practices, I have to connect it to what I just created, which is a non nonprofit industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And that, and when you talk about there not being enough revenues, it's not even only about not enough revenues, Eric, it's about, it's they're so big and they fail. Because mm -hmm. so when you talk about best practices, all we're gonna do is look at quote unquote, the outcomes, the outputs of organizations. But as we know, those of us that were executive directors and nonprofit, Eric, I mean, this is smoke and mirrors when you look at the success, because if you add up all yep. the success that organizations have in this country around nonprofit, you're gonna see that there are no more poor people, that everybody's gotten a job, everybody's at above wage, everybody's doing this. We brought all families out of poverty as we look at the local United Way, which has a great history, and now they're looking to bring in 10,000 families out of poverty. I'm like, well, is that sustained out of poverty? How long are they gonna be out of poverty? So we have this nice little goal that it looks like, but the reality is there, if you're talking about bringing 10,000 families out of sustainable poverty, Eric, that's going to be an uh, arduous process. And so I'd yeah. say it's understanding what the individual pain points are within the community. It's recognizing that the best practice may be a mom and pop store. It may not be one of these large organizations. It may be a boutique nonprofit that is somewhere getting some little answers and getting changing individual lives. And that's what's not that's not valued in nonprofit, Eric. They're mm. looking for people that can show you the thousands and thousands of widgets, these lives that have moved through a process. And so I'd say that there's a nonprofit industrial complex out there where large organizations get all the money. We started, yeah, okay. but then all of a sudden when federal money comes out, guess what? The same big organizations that were standing in line that had the grant writers, that had the relationships, stood in line and got all the money because they went immediately to the front of the line. So I'd say that we're gonna have to change some of our paradigms as we, as we look at reaching out looking at that asset-based community development that you and Calvin are both quite familiar with. Calvin worked over there at Xavier University and realizing that what are the assets, all of the assets in the in this community and really bring that design process together with empathy and with the people. Yeah, I agree. So when you look at, and, and I'll be brief as well, when you look at the design, and I'm saying design thing is the answer to everything, but when you look at the design process, it starts with empathy, right? Then it goes into insights, right? Mm -hmm. 
when I when I when I do my uh, ethnographic interviews, when I do my asset mapping, when I pull all that stuff on the wall, I need I'm challenged with saying what not what I see tells me. What are the insights inside that are, that are telling me things? Right. Then you go to prototyping. And I think too often in our communities, we try to go from problem to solution. Right. Yes. We really need to go to problem, empathy, insights prototype play in the sandbox if you will right right and don't be afraid to fail mars rover is up there launched the ingenuity helicopter last week it flew for 10 20 seconds and went 10 feet in the air the part of the article that struck me the most was they described that the development of that helicopter as high risk high reward low cost and failure is completely acceptable Right. That's what it said. That's how they got there. Right. By accepting failure. So we got to get in the sandbox and play after we do our work. Right. And then play around with prototypes before we try to talk about the big solutions. So I'm done. Right. And I agree with that. And I'll tell you, so for me, my faith always says that no delay is uh, is uh, without value. And so I think that in the time that I've been delayed in sort of seeing this uh, come to fruition, I've had a chance to develop uh, stronger relationships with three or four dope boys. And so I've been educated uh, in a way that I see both their talent differently and I see their strong desire to get out. Just like you said, that every father wants to be a good father I tell you, what, what I've seen is that a lot of dope boys, so to speak, they want to come out of that. They're tired of looking over their shoulder every day and wondering if this is going to be the day. And so uh, they're just looking for a viable way to get out. And so uh, this is interesting. I'll tell you, Byron White said something to me. I'll, I'll drop this on you. I'll get your last uh, uh, word on, on it. And then I think we're going to have to come back and have another conversation. This has been really powerful. Uh, he said that one of the things that I see, Eric, is that in Cincinnati too often that uh, sort of the dominant culture, uh, the business community in many respects, they weren't uh, willing to, uh, li so when the decision was significant, they weren't willing to trust the leadership voice of people of color. That that's what he saw, is that they weren't willing to trust us when the stakes were high. Uh, that's when they excluded us more from being able to weigh in. Uh, I, I think that we have to develop models that are less dependent upon funding from organizations. I, I think that we have enough wisdom uh, within our communities and our ally communities mm -hmm. that if we can find the discretionary effort to spend just a little bit of time working together around this, I think that we can get to a, a, a better place that is of deep interest uh, to me. And I just think we wear ourselves out if we just go it, try to go it alone. That just that model doesn't work. Uh, mm -hmm. Last words, uh, Calvin Wendell. Sure. You know what you make me think of there? I, I, first, I want to agree with you. If you wrote up a job description for drug dealer, no one would take that job. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so that's 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 that fact. But what, right. what you make me think of is Ibram X. Kendi's uh, book uh, when he talks about you're either anti-racist, segregationist or assimilationist. 
Mm -hmm. I love that paradigm. So what you're talking, we, we work with a lot of assimilationists right. at the top. So that's that business community. Good right. heart, good right. focus, all that. But you're a, you're not anti-racist, though. Right. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be anti-racist, but right. I like those three buckets that he put people in. Yeah. And that's what I hear what you're saying. there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Wendell? Yeah. I mean, I think that, Eric, I mean, again, great conversation. I knew it would be. Uh, but I mean, I think the empathy to insights is one of the takeaways that I have from this conversation today. And I think that you have to create this. And but if it's volunteer driven, as you said, then it's not going to be successful. So I'd say that it's not just about identifying the opportunities for the community stakeholders to jump in, but it's also saying what can we own, but also what are the investments necessary, Eric, because you're going to need uh, money to be able to facilitate some of these medical models and healing processes that are intense. Uh, I'd say that I go back and, and end with the words that Stephanie ended with in her piece uh, for the YWCA, which is dream a life, live a life's dream. And so I'd say that we have to start dreaming of a life out here that we want for our communities, that we want for our children and our fathers and our families, Eric. And then we can live a life's dream. And we want that dream. And we perceive that dream just fair and equitable treatment in this country, fair and equitable opportunities. Uh, to be able to be engage our fathers, engage our children, engage our communities. We just want to have the same thing here. Well, uh, Calvin, did you have a final word? I, no, I, I really agree with you, Wendell. Um, and I think that the, I'll, leave, I'll do a question. Okay. So all the people that you and I, Eric, Wendell, me, all we know in business and philanthropy and our profits in Cincinnati and all that. The question is, do we really want the same thing? <laughs> we know the answer to that, Calvin. Right. <laughs> we know. Uh, that. Right. So, so that's a very good question. Yeah. And so, here's what I believe. Uh, I believe that all of us are born with a purpose, and I believe that we spend our lifetimes looking for our team, our family. And so we're like homing pigeons that are quack 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 quack, and we're looking for somebody's making the same sound. And so for me, if I uh, if I talk to Oprah Winfrey about what my vision is and Oprah ain't feeling that, then I don't sweat Oprah. I say, God bless Oprah. And then I'm looking for the rest of my family. And I believe that if we just spend time with our family, the people that uh, have, uh, 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 you know, some uh, aligned purpose in their life. I think that our input, uh, our impact uh, collectively could be amazing. And I really believe that that's worth investing in uh, because it, it saddens me to see uh, what's happening with our young people as it relates to violence. Uh, I, I dream about that. I have nightmares sometimes about that. And I, I just don't want to have only thrown a pebble in the ocean around that. And so that's what I'm going to throw out there. I, I think that what we know from inclusion window is that organizations are stronger. Uh, they're more uh, effective. We know that diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams almost all the time. They actually outperform homogeneous teams with slightly more talent. So that's why I'm saying that if we begin to pool our own uh, resources, intellectual resources, we can uh, find va value enough in this model to mine the assets and the gold 
that exists within an untapped people. I think it's a problem if we perpetually keep looking towards uh, oppressive institutions for solutions. I just don't think that that is uh, a model. And that doesn't mean that everybody that's of the dominant culture is trying to be oppressive. We have to find out who are our allies. And then I think that uh, there's there's value in us going after some big things, realizing that most of us, if we just uh, do some little things uh, across our lives, that's probably paying uh, the price for us being here. Well, this has been a powerful conversation. Uh, it, it, it certainly far exceeds you know, what I had even anticipated and my expectations were high. Calvin, my commitment to you, man, is that I want us to uh, reconnect the three of us uh, off camera and uh, continue to explore this. You are well prepared in the area that you're working uh, in. I see you as a national treasure. Well, That's what I would you. say. Thank you. That you are one who has studied. And Wendell, you are uh, such a versatile individual that, uh, and with a brilliant mind. And I think that we have to see that together we can build something valuable, both economically and socially and societally. And uh, we've been doing that. But I think that we may be able to even have a greater impact if we look at ways of aligning that may allow us to do just that. I'm all for it. Awesome. Well, I want to say to our community, thank you for weighing in uh, this week. I promise you, you're going to have to go back and look at the tape because there were things that were said today that you're going to have to study. And Calvin, how can people reach you if they're trying to follow up with you? Sure. They can reach me at CWWilliams43 at Gmail or give me a call at 513-257-4128. They can also go to the Lucian Families website, Lucian Families, L-U-C-I-A-N, LucianFamilies.com. Wendell, how can they reach you and how can they get a copy of your book? Calvin, do you have a book? No, not yet. Oh, we got to make that happen. So, Wendell, we're going to double team him. See, my books are up. My, my, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he knows. Don't start, Wendell. Don't start. Long time. But of course, you can go on Amazon.com and get my books. They're behind me. Almost home my journey from 520 pounds and... 54 Tips to Victory, How I Lost 300 Pounds. And you can also follow me on Facebook, uh, Journey to Win. You can follow me on Instagram, My Journey to Win. And, of course, you can reach me at WendellEllis at Yahoo.com. Uh, right. Wendell, Wendell's not only working as a senior consultant with uh, integrity and doing diversity, equity, inclusion uh, consulting for the last 25 years, uh, but also has done a lot of work with fathers and been a real advocate personally. Uh, around uh, caring about kids from mine uh, to those in the community. Thank you both gentlemen for uh, this beautiful uh, Saturday morning gift. It's a birthday gift to me, hearing from both of you and uh, and our community weighing in. Thank and you all. the biggest gift you're going to get for your birthday though. Okay, good. I'm looking, forward, sure to you know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to more. I love you all and yeah, uh, take care of each other. <laughs>